This is TechSnap, episode 363. Welcome to TechSnap, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems, network, and administration podcast. We recorded this episode on April 10th. 2018. It's brought to you by our three great sponsors, DigitalOcean, iX Systems, and Ting. My name is Chris, and joining me every single week is my co-host, the admin, the engineer, and the presenter, Mr. Payne, Mr. Wes Payne. Hello, Wes. Hello, Chris. Hello, Wes. I love our warm-up story this week. Be careful what you copy, Chris, especially in this dangerous world of zero-width characters. These are invisible non-printing characters that are not displayed by basically the majority of applications. And if you're clever about it, they can be used to fingerprint text for certain users or encode any kind of information. We're hearing about this story years after what must have been an unbelievable event at the time. So the author of this post, which we'll have linked in the show notes, Tom, was in a situation where he was a member of a forum where they had conversations about competitive tournaments across a variety of video games. And of course, this team had a private message board where they would post important announcements, discuss strategy, things like that. And eventually these announcements and strategy posts started showing up elsewhere on the web. And they figured pretty quickly it must be one of our own members leaking the information. And they needed to track down who it was And they came up with a pretty clever solution, which at the time must have blown the leaker's mind, and now, years later, has resulted in a pretty fun Medium post. So, how to catch the leaker? Well, Tom, being oh so clever, was able to create a script that would invisibly embed the username in every announcement. So, you know, each announcement rendered uniquely for you with your username secretly embedded. The simple version of this is the username is converted to its binary form, and then the binary will be converted into a series of zero-width characters representing each binary digit. So you basically take, you know, zeros and ones, and instead of rendering them as the normal digits, encode them into a series of zero-width characters. You can then take this zero-width string, right? So, I mean, you call it a string, but on the page, it doesn't really show up at all, and just insert it into text. If the text was posted elsewhere, and if it's just been copied... That zero-width character should be extracted, should be copied right along, right? It's the same as any other character from a, you know, from a buffer perspective. And then if you see it, you can sample it, reverse engineer it, walk back through the process, and get the username. Yeah, and uh, they go into some detail, too, about how they came up with clever ways to do that. But what I found interesting just testing this out is damn near every application doesn't render these. It's only a few that I have used that actually render these characters. And uh, it's sort of surprising because you can move them between browsers, editors, operating systems. You can copy and paste across a Mac on Firefox into a Chrome Google Doc, which then gets copied on a Linux box and pasted into a text editor, which then gets copied and pasted into a web form. And they get moved around the entire time across operating systems, browser environments, online editors text editors on the desktop, you never see them. Yeah, and that's even from your perspective, you know, as an advanced user, for a layperson, that would be almost impossible yeah, to I spot. knew they were there. Right. I, I was testing it. I knew they were there, and yet pretty much... They followed you just the same. Very few things. Even, even like the terminal doesn't render them. Now, with the script in hand, a trap is laid. Over at the message board, a new announcement was released with the script running on the server side, much to, you know, everyone's surprise. Within a few hours, that text had, of course, been leaked somewhere else. They were able to go to go copy it back, 
put it through the decoding cycle, and bam, username found, user banned. Yeah, the decoding cycle is essentially just reversing the encoding cycle, so it's pretty simple, and uh, they manage to track it to the culprit. And then he says, I also have uh, some other ideas in the future about ways to make this even better, maybe generate a unique identifier, so that way if people did find out the script was running, they still would know how to change it. Because if you think about it, this process is so simple. If you copied the text and knew what they were injecting server-side, you could just do it yourself and implicate somebody else. So you would want something that uniquely identifies people. That way they couldn't trick it. But other than that, this is pretty foolproof. And if people don't know you're doing this, if you're just trying to get one person before people catch on, this could really work. It's clever. In a way, this reminds me of steganography. It's not the same. You know, the practice of concealing messages inside an image using uh, the compression tricks. But it's similar. It's that same vein of hiding in plain sight. And that is always fascinating Things that have been around for ages that we just never really given a lot of thought to. Yeah, and it's a little, you know, it's disturbing almost. It's it's so simple, uh, and yet we all copy copy and paste text every day, right? And you don't always think about the security of your clipboard, but especially if you're in a sensitive environment, be careful. If you want to play around with the characters yourself, it's pretty fun to mess around like I did. Go to techsnap.systems slash 363, and it should be our first link. TravisCI.com was non-operational for five and a half hours on March 13th, 2018. They've gone over all of the uncomfortable details about what happened and what went sideways, and they've written up a solid post-mortem. And the TechSnap program's always a fan of these because they tend to be pretty educational. So what you grok here, Wes? All right, it all started at 12.04 UTC when a database query was accidentally run against... Of course, the production database, and it truncated all tables. Oh, no. Yeah. So the query was blocked for about like 10 minutes, finally executed at 1214 UTC. Of course, there was a, there was a, you know, a bunch of alerts started firing. They responded quickly. Their API remained operational for about a half hour. So at first, you know, it maybe, maybe it's not so bad. Caveat there is it was connected to basically an, an empty database. Yeah, the downside there then is you could have users connecting to an API that's still operational, but you have an empty database on the other end of it, which could have all kinds of consequences. Yeah, exactly. At that time, if anyone signed into Travis CI, they just saw a blank user profile. All their records had been wiped from the database, so they just created new ones. Now, they pretty quickly realized what was happening and took the whole system offline, you know, just a just an outage, let's get things corrected. At that point, they were then able to start a database restore process, and a couple hours later, they had the original state, or at least, you know, as close of a backup as they had, restored. So that, that part is good. When the system was finally back online, those who had logged in during the 30 minutes between the database truncation and actually taking the systems offline found themselves logged in as the wrong users. Oh, fascinating. Yeah, so their login credentials in the form of a signed token in local storage in the browser corresponded to user records created after System Restore. Also, to further complicate this, new customers are not the only accounts which get new user records created. Uh, They also sync users from GitHub on a regular basis. That meant that both new and existing users at Travis CI were affected by this issue. To deal with that... Basically, they just revoked all affected tokens, wiped the slate clean, and then users could log in again and should have access to the correct account. One other complication here 
once the database was restored, it turns out not all of the cron jobs started up as they should have. So there were some things gone missing. Yeah, I, I, it wasn't clear in the postmortem why they decided or neglected to start cron backup. It seemed like maybe it was an intentional decision because they didn't want things to kick off, uh, but then just forgot to go back to it and start it again. I could see that. If I had if I had scripts that were running against systems that were down, just turn all those off for now. Oh, I'll go back and turn it on when we're all done. And by the time we're all done, I'm so exhausted. I, it completely, you know, spaces and I completely forget to go back and start something. Yeah, and it, and it may be more difficult with the nature of cron as well. If you do have monitoring, it might take a while, right? You have to wait for a period. Oh, yes, that job did never actually right. finish, and then you're already behind. Yeah. Reviewing their postmortem, it does look like they have some pretty extensive application logs, and that was a huge asset in this case. They were able to backtrack through, do some review, find all the customer accounts that may have been impacted by the token mismatch, and then they could contact all of them you know, just as a matter of course. Yeah, there seems to be indications in here that they even had uh, insights into what aspects of the systems they hit, what data records they may have accessed or did not access in this case, which shows you when you have been impacted by an outage like this and things go sideways, you might expect you to be offline. But this aspect where the API remains online while the database is empty, that was a scenario they probably didn't predict. And so having this logging and tracing in place really was sort of the net that caught all of the loose pieces. Yeah, because to show up when you have an observable system, there are these benefits. Thankfully, they were able to trace back through the API logs and figure out, like, what was the root cause? Where did this database truncation command actually come from? Turns out they're using a database cleaner gem. It's just as part of, you know, setting up for tests when you're working with like a test or a staging database. The shell those tests were running, unfortunately, had a environmental variable for database URL, and it was set as the production database. It was it was an old terminal window in a TMUX session that had been used for inspecting production data a few days before. It was never shut down. So somebody sat down at an old terminal window to execute a simple command, and it led to all of this? Exactly. <laughs> so that raises the question of why, when they're trying to debug or inspect production data, are they connecting these developer environments right to the production database, and then especially more so with write access? Hmm. Uh, you know, of course, this is always a matter of, you know, time and have you made it have you made it work the way you needed to yet? So their tooling and processes made it kind of difficult to connect to the read only follower. And so connecting to the primary database was just a common shortcut. We've all had a few of those common shortcuts in our day, Wes. Yeah, right. I mean, it's important to to realize when they are falling short and when they are dangerous, uh, learn from incidents like this, and then try to come up with better patterns so that it's still convenient, right? You don't want to sacrifice your productivity, but you just want to make sure that you have only the power you actually need for that situation. What are they changing as a result of this? Well, for starters, and this is a good one, they've just revoked the truncate permission on their databases entirely, making it impossible for tables to be truncated. Um, you know, then if you do need to do that, you can go add the permissions back. But that's a second step, one that shouldn't really be occurring as part of their test suite and should make it a lot more explicit that you are actually trying to make these, you know, harmful or pot- potentially harmful database changes in production. Uh, they've also added a few other checks. So their their internal um, test runner checks for the database URL environmental variable. They've got a shell prompt that will warn if that variable is set. Uh, and uh-huh. they've actually submitted a PR back upstream to add some similar functionality to the gem they're using to do the database cleaning in the first place. Okay, so those are good steps, yeah. Uh, and setting the alert is a good idea. That that seems like reasonable steps to take, but it's not drastic 
changes to fix the problem. Yeah, they've also looked at a few other compounding issues, and that's that's often involved in outages like this, right? Usually it's a systems failure. There's a number of things. Even if the you know the core problem was the database, there's always these these lurking other factors. Every single time. And it can be often overwhelming because then all of a sudden you're troubleshooting additional ancillary problems instead of having all of your focus on the core issue. And if you don't have the right team structure in an IT department, you can get overwhelmed with just users reporting issues if you don't have proper channels to handle all of that. It can be a massive blunder. When you have one core system go down, the domino effect is it can be awful. Very stressful. Right. I think that I mean that really makes it important to have to have checklists, to have good be able to you know review is a system healthy and where is it failing and to have practiced some of these, you know, whether it was in a in a real outage or not, uh have it run down, have people know what they're doing, what their tasks are, uh, so you can actually you know, work effectively together. In the case of Travis CI, you've got to give them credit for doing a real genuine postmortem, looking at some of the uncomfortable bits, acknowledging that even some of our most experienced developers can have basic mistakes that can cause massive problems, and we have to build for that too. Like There is some honest soul-searching that they did here. Do you think they went far enough, though, in totality? I do think you're right that, um, you know, it seems like they understand what they need to be doing. They're aware that, like, you know, this shouldn't have happened. What can we do? They're following the process. And I like that. Uh, I do. I am still kind of curious. I don't quite get why. Sure, sometimes you need to interface to production. Maybe you have some handy tooling, uh, you know, with some of your development tools. I don't really get why a machine that's running tests needs to do that anyway. You know, spin up a new, yeah. have have a dedicated way to access production that has maybe yeah. a checkout of that code, yeah. but isn't running tests ever, isn't configured to. Yeah, if it's connected to production, don't have it do the test stuff. Right, yeah. Just firewall that off. Usually, you know, if you can, have production as safe and as yeah. isolated as possible and do everything else in a separate environment. The alert for the environment variable being set to production is a good step. But it seems like it's a band-aid. Exactly. If you you know you're taking steps to make the commingling of these systems easier and safer, but I think the real solution is just don't commingle. That's probably a bigger change. It may be something they're thinking about doing in the future. And heads up, if you are a Travis CI user, go check your email and just make sure you don't have a security notice. They have contacted all the affected customers. If that's you, uh, go find out more information. Co slash snap. This is infrastructure on demand. They have SSDs for every rig, 40 gigabit connections coming to the hypervisors, 12 data centers all over the world. They're taking care of all the hard bits. Do.co slash snap. You can sign up there and get a $100 credit. Now, it lasts for 60 days, but this should give you a chance to kick the tires at DigitalOcean. See how fast all of those backend services are. Take advantage of the block or object storage. Try out the network level firewalls and spin up an entire application stack or just the base rig. Whatever fits you with that $100 credit when you go to do.co slash snap. I'll also draw your attention to their flexible droplets. Kind of a new thing here. For $15 a month, you can mix and match your resources that are most appropriate for your application. So go to do.co slash snap to try that out. They also have CPU optimized droplets. If you have massive CPU workloads you want to try out, throw it on a DigitalOcean droplet. And as always, their standard droplet pricing. My favorite rig, three cents an hour. They have systems that are even lower than that, unbelievably so, but the three cents an hour rig is such a sweet spot, I've literally never maxed out one of those boxes. That's how powerful their systems are. Do.co slash snap. As we've previously 
and rampantly speculated, CPU speculative execution has led to even more woes. New research is showing that there's a slightly different attack that is focusing on a different part of the branch prediction system. That's right. This new attack, named Branch Scope, by a number of researchers from four universities, shares some similarity with variant 2 of that oh-so-familiar Spectre attack. Both Branch Scope and Spectre variant 2 take advantage of the behavior of the processor's branch predictor. Spectre 2 relied on a part called the branch target buffer. That's a data structure within the processor that records the branch target. Branch scope, on the other hand, leaks information using the direction of the predictor, basically meaning whether it's likely to be taken or not. That's stored in the pattern history table, or PHT. The PHT keeps a running score of recently taken branches to remember if those branches were taken or not. Usually it's done with a four-state system, so you have, you know, it's strongly taken in the past, weakly taken, weakly not taken, or strongly not taken. And then each time a branch is taken or not, that is factored back into the counter. So the counter's value is moved towards strongly taken if you've taken it, and moved the opposite way if you didn't take it. This design means you'll occasionally have a misprediction, but it won't, like, radically shift the result of the prediction, so it's actually one of the more accurate ways to do this sort of branch prediction. With Spectre Variant 2, an attacker primes the branch target buffer, so you, they carefully execute branch instructions so that the PTP has predictable content, and with a known instruction that will, if speculatively executed, disturb the processor's cache in a detectable way. So then, when a victim program is, is ran, the attacker can check to see if that cache was disturbed, and that means that that specula- speculative execution occurred, and they can measure that disturbance and gain information. Branch scope is very similar, but here they're they're targeting the PHT. So they're running branch instructions so that the PHT will always assume a particular branch is taken or not. So they've chosen a, basically a targeted setup of, yes, we think this is going to be this likely that that branch will be taken. They then run victim code. It makes a branch, and that will disturb the PHT, right? Because if that's a new branch, that's more information. It's going to go possibly change some of the values that are stored in that table. The attacker then runs more code, and they use that to cleverly check that table, basically see if their, their branches get executed or not. And if it's, if it's been disturbed, they can tell that based on the frequency of the executions. That, again, is an information leak. Now, a reasonable question here is, okay, well, in theory, yes, okay, this, this sounds dangerous, but what are the actual limitations? There are a number in the threat model here. One co-residency on the same physical core. So in this attack, they are assuming that the victim and the spy programs are running on the same physical core, since a lot of this ends up being shared at the virtual core level. So you need access to that same structure. If you're on the same physical core, you'll have it. Number two, and this is maybe a big one, to perform such high-resolution branch attacks, they have to slow down the victim software. So that means you need to have enough privileges to either you know, get the OS to do it, use some other attack to introduce slowdown to the system, a somewhat controlled environment. And three, they need to be able to trigger victim code. So you can't just observe a process, you need to be able to actually trigger the code when you're ready for it after you've set up the system in the state that you want it, and then after execution, run more code to go detect that state. So it's not just as simple as you know, like yeah. running on a program, running on a server and, and you own the box at this point. You live on it if you're doing this, and you've probably already gotten root or admin access. Now, where this is a little more dangerous, perhaps, is in, in virtualization environments, where you may just be on a machine, and if you're on the same core as another yeah. guest, um, if, if that is enabled, 
that may be more dangerous or yeah. yes, if for long-term surveillance. So with those caveats, you know, th- this is really just an extension of these same kind of attacks. We've talked about it before. Again, this just, you know, this is just the the proof in the pudding of horrible information leaks and it does it, it just reinforces that for a lot of the high performance code for the features we've come to rely on from these processors, there are just some fundamental limitations in our current designs and until we can get past that, these are just going to keep happening. Now, whenever possible, we like to wrap it with a bit of good news, and that comes from Intel. In a statement, they say they've been working with these very researchers and determined that the method they described is similar to the other known side-channel exploits, similar enough, in fact, that Intel anticipates the existing software mitigations for previously known side-channel exploits should be effective in preventing this one. So that's the good news. If you're patching your S, taking care of your systems, you're probably already taken care of for branch scope. TechSnap.ting.com. It's smarter than unlimited. If you use less, you pay less. The average Ting bill is just $23 per month per phone. Now, it starts at $6 a month for the phone. And then you pay for your usage, your minutes, your messages, and your megabytes. That's a great deal. And there's no contract. There's no termination. There's no fees mixed in there that they, they slip in. No service agreement, quote unquote. It's just simple. It's easy to understand mobile. TechSnap.ting.com. A fair price for however much you talk, text, and data you use. They have nationwide coverage, CDMA, and GSM, and they have fantastic world-class customer service. But even four years in, I've probably called them twice. One time when I was traveling with this crazy MiFi setup, and the other time when I thought I had to call them to activate a phone before I realized I could do everything. And I mean everything through their control panel. It's great. And they have apps on the phones, too, if you just want to manage it via an app. And they have lots of devices. I mentioned they have a GSM and CDMA network, so that means there's a bunch you could just bring and get a $25 service credit when you visit our techsnap.ting URL. Or maybe pick up a new phone. Go to techsnap.ting.com and then go check out the Ting shop for a sale on some great Motorola phones that Ting loves. They've just dropped the prices on a batch of these Moto phones that just don't get enough attention. Like the Moto X4, techsnap.ting.com, $349, out the door, no contract, no termination fee, turn it off if you don't want it, $6 a month to keep it active. A smarter way to do mobile. Thanks for supporting the show by going there, and thanks to Ting for supporting the TechSnap program, techsnap.ting.com. Thanks for going to techsnap.system slash contact and sending in your question, your feedback, and your follow-up. And we got a great batch this week. Let's start with some follow-up. Matthew writes in with a neat use for Terraform. He says, I was listening to your last episode about Terraform, and I really enjoyed it. When Wes asked for success stories of modules, I knew I had to write in. I work for MongoDB, the company, maintaining our packaging code for MongoDB, the database. (laughs) (laughs) as well as running the infrastructure for our CI system, Evergreen, which is open source, by the way. He links to that in in his email that we'll have linked in the show notes. We run Evergreen in AWS because some of the old Linux distros we have to support were very strict about how we do security. Additionally, testing MongoDB sometimes requires spinning up multiple servers, so we have to give fairly permissive credentials to our developers for a build. AWS enables a lot of nice network-level security, and other account-level features for enabling people to do this in a sane way. However, 
It's a pain to set up by hand, so we have used Terraform and lots of our own and community modules to do it. As a matter of fact, plug, 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 I'm in the process of open sourcing the following Terraform modules and giving a talk about how we secure our CI system and automate it with Terraform at Linux Fest Northwest. That's incredible. That's uh, so what fantastic feedback. I will definitely be checking out Evergreen and your talk. Yeah, Matthew, thank you so much for writing in. Please do come say hi to Wes and I. We will be at Linux Fest Northwest at the end of April 2018. So we got an email into the show a couple of weeks ago that was essentially boiled down to, I'm a sysadmin. How do I stay relevant? How do I skate to where the puck is going when I'm just crazy busy keeping my head above water? And this sort of snowballed into a bigger topic on the show because we also got a whole bunch of emails about getting started in the field. And so we wanted to kind of spend some time in the show this week covering this topic. So let's start with those of you that are already sysadmins in the field that have a gig. You wrote in with lots of little little tips here and there about staying fresh, about watching YouTube videos, listening to podcasts, and learning Vi, keeping your skills fresh. But I wanted to I wanted to cover some areas for people that aren't in the industry yet, because a lot of these will apply to those of you that already have jobs too. And uh, Matt Man had some great tips. He said, "Keep a few books. The Unix and Linux System Administrator handbooks are still great. They're still and if you read those and you want to continue." You want to get into the industry after that, then proceed. If you hate reading those books, you should probably do something else. Also, there's going to be long hours, everyone knowing your job better than you, and dealing with alpha geeks and system commands and locations of config files and locations and format changes. Production is hell, so you're going to have to grab a helmet, you're going to need a gun, and you're going to have to prepare for battle. Learn Vi. It's on every system. Have a Decent and basic understanding of C and C++. It does help when you're looking at crash strings. Look at in look into learning a scripting language. Uh, of course, there's things like Perl, but Python, whatever you want. Learn sed, learn grep, understand TCP/IP. Try to understand SQL. Try to understand YAML, JSON, things like that. Um, and then he also talks about so learn the scientific method. That can be very useful when troubleshooting. Absolutely. I some, think that's a great tip right there. Some good basics in there. Uh, he's He's got a really long email. He says, final tips, uh, read the patch notes and patch. Back up and back up offsite and test with restores. It's not a question of if your disk will fail, but when. <laughs> we couldn't say it any better ourselves. Yeah, I thought so. Ben writes in with a slightly different take on the question. Once you have your foot in the door, leveraging resources such as the TechSnap podcast can be a huge factor in advancing your career. You will already be up to date with industry trends, recent threats, attacks, and mitigations. You will also regularly get motivated to try your hand at various fun projects, and that can be really beneficial to your understanding of servers, Linux, open source in general. Just one example, setting up your own servers for personal projects or trying out applications mentioned on the show. Anyone who listens regularly to you know system administration podcasts and worries that they may be underqualified for the industry, they can rest assured. There's only a small subset of people in the industry who actually enjoy their work enough to you know keep up to date. Take any small opportunity you can, make the initial leap, and the rest will come in time. At least you'll be doing the job you love, and how many people can say that? Well said, Ben. Uh, and his point in there about listening to podcasts was echoed by several folks because last week we asked for people to write in who've done some hiring. 
And we're going to read one, but we got several emails. And um, there was a common theme is what are they doing in their free time? Are they are they listening to podcasts? Are are they are they reading you know Reddit's blogs? Are they are they are they spending time going deeper into technology? That's generally an indicator that they're passionate about it. And that uh, the limited hiring I've done, I've I could count the amount of people I've hired on my hands. Um, but in that limited hiring, that passion was always the clearest indicator for me. Yeah, and usually, you know, if, if you're trying to find a company you want to stay at and grow it's a good sign when they appreciate that. You know, they're not, maybe they're in a pinch and they really need you to have a skill set. But in many cases, if you can show that you, you know, you can learn that you're excited, that goes a long way. Now, the famous Mr. S writes in with a great, great set of advice. He's got a whole way for you to think about this. And Mr. S has done a boatload of hiring. He he filled us in on the background. He's definitely got legitimate credentials on this. And he writes, I want to offer my advice from a recruiting standpoint. To set the premise, it's important to note how an employer is looking at a junior, non-experienced sysadmin. For a given employer, this is a risky investment rather than anything else. And as with all investments, the employer considers the following. The investment time, money, and alternative investments that could be made. The risk, the yield, and the predictability. Just a side note, my personal opinion here, I completely agree as a business owner Hiring somebody new is the biggest risk we take on, especially someone who's junior. Sure, their salary is probably lower, but not significantly lower, and the amount of training and overhead that they take is a big investment on the business standpoint, and for a small business can even sort of slow things down for a couple of months. So now back to Mr. S. He says, Once approaching an interview, a candidate should make it clear to an employer what makes him or her a good investment, one that is relatively low risk, with good predictability, and long-running yield. Passion for tech is an important one. IT roles are tough, and people don't realize it, but it can be a daunting job at times. And really, if one lacks a true passion, it's easy to get burned out in this profession. And a burnout IT personnel are a true burden to a business. Also, a passionate personnel are often more creative, up-to-date, and come up with new ways to solve problems and so forth. It's important to show a true passion for tech and IT in general. There are many ways to do so. Talk about the podcast you're listening to, wink wink, he says. Talk about the home lab you set up, about the summer project you made in your church, your synagogue, at the YMCA, at the local school. Tell them about how you fix your friends' and family's computers every damn visit, about how you install Lineage OS, jailbreak your PS4. It doesn't really matter. You just have to show the employer that you have a true passion for tech outside of the 9-to-5 world. Also, other things to consider, just to kind of wrap this up, oftentimes an employer is going to be afraid that once you're up to snuff, you're going to bail, so you need to kind of soothe that. You also have to demonstrate that you are a sufficient learner, that you're good at picking up new skills, finding information, and self-troubleshooting. Also, troubleshooting is something that's really good to demonstrate, and it's hard to really wrap your head around how to do that since you can't say, I have a certification in troubleshooting. So you'll have to come up with some examples of how you've troubleshot in the past and try to be well-articulated, think through your sentences, because when you are in IT and things go wrong or there's some big project that has to be done, they often involve complicated technologies with complicated results and interdependencies that you have to explain to somebody who doesn't understand the technology. I think that's a great point. You know, if you're if you're preparing for an interview, maybe spend some time with some of your non-tech friends, explain the projects you're working on, have some examples chosen. And of course, there's no substitute for, you know, 
getting your hands dirty, having troubleshot a couple programs running on a server, figuring out why Nginx won't start. And then when you're thrown in a scenario, you'll, you'll have that to fall back on. Mr. S's entire email is linked in our show notes. And if you're looking for a job, this would be a really good read because I just gave you the highlights and there's more in there and he's hired a lot of people. And so I think he has a pretty good handle on what potential employers are looking for. If you are in the job market, go to techsnap.systems slash 363. But honestly, to Mr. S, thank you. And to everyone who sent in emails, even the ones that didn't make it on the show, we did blend a lot of the different threads that seemed common into our take on this. I hope it's useful and feel free to keep sending us ideas. We'll work it into future coverage. And we need another batch of your questions to get the feedback back on its regular track. Go to techsnap.system slash contact. ixsystems.com slash techsnap. Go there to support the show and learn more about IX Systems. It's a company that believes in open source technology, that it has the power to change the world through its process of open collaboration and innovation. This philosophy fuels all of the product designs at IX Systems, and they leverage open source technology across their entire product line, including FreeNAS, TrueNAS, and many other projects that you're familiar with. IX Systems has infrastructure hardware, services hardware, storage hardware, and solutions to manage all of it. When you contact them, the white glove process begins from that moment to the moment it's in your data center. In fact, IX Systems professionals can install and configure any open source operating system you choose. Any open source software you need can be preloaded, set up, and optimized for your system when your servers reach your data center. And speaking of TrueNAS, IX Systems just released TrueNAS 11.1, which provides improvements for ZFS, expanded integration with cloud services, lots of new sync options, and so much more. A truly robust storage platform. You can check out all of the details in a complete blog post at IX Systems site. Do me a favor. Start by going to ixsystems.com slash techsnap. That brings us to the end of this week's program. And as Chris mentioned, we'll be at Linux Fest Northwest. Come say hi. Yeah, it's going to be Saturday, April 28th and Sunday, April 29th, 2018 in Bellingham, Washington. You can go to linuxfestnorthwest.org for more info. If the stars align, we may record a live tech snap there. So we'd uh, love to have you join us for that. Also, Consider subscribing to the show so you just get it every week. Go to techsnap.systems slash subscribe. We got links to your favorite podcast catchers there as well as the RSS feed itself. Mr. West, why don't you tell people where they can find you throughout the week? At West Payne. And I'm at Chris LAS. And I want to give a thank you to everybody who's been sending us feedback on the free NAS garage projects. Resounding, everybody likes them, wants us to keep doing them. In fact, I, I just read a story this morning or an email this morning from a listener who said, you know, after listening to your segments, I decided to convert to FreeNAS. I thought, oh, that's awesome. So, that's fantastic. And it's working out great for him. So I think we'll keep those going. Uh, the day to be damned, the people demand it, Wes. That's right. More FreeNAS coming your way. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you next week. Next week.